From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. A few years ago, Debbie Doherty realized something might be fundamentally wrong with the way organizations across the United States address sexual harassment. Almost every large organization, from government entities to universities to private businesses to nonprofit organizations, have sexual harassment policies and engage in sexual harassment prevention training. And yet the problem persists. The rates at which people report having been sexually harassed hasn't changed much in recent years. And measuring this is tricky because it's possible that a culture of prevention training has created an environment in which people feel more empowered to report or better able to recognize that it has happened to them. So the frequency could be going down while reporting could be going up. But even if that's true, it's incontestable that the problem itself isn't going away. And Doherty started to wonder whether that might mean that all of that training isn't very effective. And worse, she began to suspect it might be having other consequences. In a study published in the journal Human Relations in 2016, Doherty noted that although the intent of sexual harassment prevention training is to create a culture of dignity and respect, the unintended result was often a culture of fear. Employees began wondering whether their comments and actions might be taken out of context. They worried that the company's policies might be used as a weapon against them by disgruntled fellow employees. And ultimately, in some cases, this left men in particular afraid to interact with women, which, of course, is counterproductive to the very culture these policies were intending to create. Doherty definitely wasn't suggesting that sexual harassment prevention training should stop let alone that sexual harassment should be permitted to happen, but she did suspect there might be a better way of going about the goal of making workplaces safe and welcoming and equitable and effective places for people to be. She's written about how to do that in her new book. It's called, quite simply, Sexual Harassment in Organizational Culture. Debbie Doherty, welcome. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start today at this idea that you've been pointing out for years. We spend a lot of time and a lot of money on sexual harassment prevention, and it's not clear that we're solving the problem. And you've suggested this is in part because the go-to solutions, creating policies, creating training, and creating reporting structures are, and these are your words, overly simplistic and overly optimistic. Unpack that for me. Yeah, I, I know that we still approach sexual harassment with kind of unmitigated hope that a simplistic approach will solve a really complicated problem. And we know that those solutions don't work, that policies by themselves or policies that are very simplistic, not culturally grounded, are, are going to fail. Oftentimes, organizations seem to be really driven by a desire to prevent lawsuits rather than a desire to prevent harassment itself. And that sort of starts a trajectory that can be problematic in terms of actually solving the root issues. Yeah, I do think that there is certainly a desire to prevent lawsuits. 
Um, and part of that is because their organizations have been asked to approach sexual harassment as a legal problem. And so, of course, the first thing that kind of jumps to mind is the the lawsuit, the legal implications of it. But sexual harassment is only a legal issue after it's become an issue in the organization. In other words, prevention is way better than worrying about lawsuits after the, the fact. One of the primary problems with the linear model that you talk a lot about in your book, that's this, you know, policies, training, reporting, is that it assumes judicious outcomes for the targets of harassment. We should say here that you very deliberately use the word target rather than victims in your book. I really like that framing, by the way. So I'm going to adopt that for our conversation as well. Um, but but back to this idea that if we have a policy and targets know it and they have a way to report violations of it, then outcomes are going to be positive for those targets, except you point out that's not at all what happens. I like to think that somehow I'm being, you know, amazingly brilliant for pointing that out. But every target ever or almost every target ever will tell you exactly the same thing, that the policies don't work for them. Because when they do report, well, first of all, the policies don't really encourage them to report. And then when they do report, oftentimes the culture gets in the way of everything else, right? Right. And the culture makes it so that people who are targeted are unlikely to believe, be believed. When they are believed, people also tend to see them as weak or as victims. So in other words, thinking that a policy that tells people how to report is going to solve the problem really underestimates the importance of the complexity of communication. The the linear model assumes that sexual harassment is really very easy to solve. The first thing is that you know the perpetrator needs to know that this is a problem, and that the it, then the target needs to know how to report, and then the manager needs to know what to do next and how to mitigate the situation. But really, people already know. I mean, ask any manager. They, they kind of already know. Ask a perpetrator. They know. They know when they're doing something wrong. Targets, generally speaking, can figure out how to report and who to report to. But they also know that in their culture and the American workplace, American organizations, not just America, gosh, it's, it's worldwide, that reporting has larger implications. Yeah, there are consequences. Consequences, yes, exactly. Debbie, another consequence, one that I alluded to in the opening of this program, is that this linear structure, even if it's well-intentioned and even if it's executed for the purposes it was designed for, it can still create a culture of fear because people begin to worry that what they might say or do could be interpreted wrong. And this can impact the way that men, who are a majority of the people who are accused of sexual harassment, choose to interact with women, who are the majority of targets of harassment. And 
Now, here's the real pernicious part, since men also hold more power in most organizations in our society, as well as society as a whole. This means women may not be given the same access to authority and mentorship and camaraderie and culture building. And this is a classic case of unintended consequences. Yeah, there certainly is that piece to it. But I think even on a broader sense, that that study that you were talking about, what we found was that people reinterpreted that sexual harassment policy so that it actually fit into the old organizational norms, the the norms that the policy is attempting to change. And so we ended up having people talk about women as weak, um, as being um, morally problematic, likely to um, use the policy to hurt their male coworkers, who women actually sexually harassing male coworkers by dressing well or putting on perfume. It was really strange. So even beyond like you know, increasing fear or changing the nature of the fear, I felt like it actually just sort of tacked on to a culture that was already fearful. It kind of enhanced the fearfulness of the culture that was already in place. Well, here, I'm going to give an example here. Uh, I would describe the training we have in my organization as here are some rules. Here are also a lot of things that are not rules, but guidelines. And you should bear in mind that everyone interprets words and actions differently. Call us if you have any questions and good luck. That's <laughs> indicative of this linear structure of communication you write about that does nothing about does nothing to solve <laughs> culture, right? Right. The thing is, is that, and, and I don't know how complex I can get here. So, you know, you decide, but you know, we tend to think of communication and policies and training are forms of communication. It's just the simple sharing of information. Let me give you this information. But you know what? Communication is more than that. Communication is also the creation of messages that persuade, help us think differently about things. It's also about meaning making. What does something mean in a given culture or an organization? And Policies as we know them and training as we conduct them both focus on the very simple idea of information, but ignore the more important aspect of meaning making. What I realize in reading your book that we're missing in my organization, and I should say this is common, so I'm not just picking on my own organization here. Many organizations are missing out on this thing that you just alluded to, making meaning or meaning making. And a big part of this is not just talking about rules and processes, but defining and building values. Right. Exactly. I think one of the things that we need to think about with values, we, we tend to think about values as something that we say we have, but really values are something that we do. There, We know what a person values based on their actions, not based on their words. And so it's really important that our policies and our trainings tap into our organizational values. Um, There are also hmm, fractures, I guess, when the values that we claim to have don't match the values that we do. 
This is what you refer to as the difference between espoused values and enacted values. Yes, exactly. And so if if we can tap into that and say, look, look at the difference here between what you're doing and what you say you want to do, who you are and who you want to be, it's the training can become much more effective. So I guess what I'm saying is understanding the culture and what, you know, every culture is distinctive. And so you can't have a universal training, um, but being able to have policies and trainings that tap into the unique qualities of the culture is really what's going to have the best chance of making a difference. In order to do this, to identify and improve on an institution's cultural core, you suggest that it's really important not to ignore emotion, which is this really personal and nebulous concept, right? Emotion. But you you note in your book, as others have previously, that every organization already has emotional rules. Help me through what emotional rules are. Yeah, emotional rules tells us how, when, and why we can exp- and who gets to express emotions. So, for example, in organizations, emotions are supposed to be limited because people think we need to be rational. And for whatever reasons, we see emotions as the opposite of of rationality. But we know from research that without emotions, rationality doesn't exist. You can't function if you're not. You can't make any choices at all, even the most mundane choices about what kind of breakfast you're going to eat if you don't have some sort of... um, ability to tap into the emotion-centered part of your brain. And so because of this weirdness with emotions not supposed to exist in organizations, there are hidden emotion rules, such as you're not supposed to experience or express anger or sadness or fear, which means that when a person or a target reports that they've been sexually harassed, they're in kind of a catch-22. If they report their harassment and express anger while they're doing it, then they're going to be seen as a person who's a little bit out of control, maybe emotionally unstable. If they're crying or fearful, then they're going to be seen as inappropriate in the organization, not a good team player. But if they do it without expressing any emotion at all, then people misinterpret the experience as being not that bad. And this really prevents people from reporting things or addressing things because they are afraid that expressing anger or sadness or fear or disappointment about something that isn't hard and fast harassment could be problematic. You wrote in the book about a conversation that you had with your aunt about something that was maybe sort of on the margins. But if she had existed in an institution in which she was worried that her emotional reaction was a violation of the emotional rules, she wouldn't have been able to address it and it wouldn't have stopped. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about her experience was that's what we call what I call an acute case of sexual harassment. It's not really woven into the organizational culture. So she was able to confront it, confront her coworker, report it, and it stopped. And that was it. That was the end of it. Moved on. No more cases. A great reflection on how culture can take this thing and nip it in the bud. Right. Like it was a violation of culture. She felt empowered by the organizational culture to say something about it. It stopped. Everybody moved on. Exactly. And I mean, isn't that the ideal? That's what we all want. We we all want to be able to move on after these types of incidents. But some cultures don't allow that to happen. The takeaway for me in this is that you're advocating for a transformation in which harassment isn't first and foremost viewed as a violation of policies. It's viewed as a violation of values. It's understood as a violation of values. And that happens because those values have been evidenced through inaction in other situations. Um, and, and maybe not just in situations in which the organization was responding to harassment per se, but in which the organization espoused complementary values and then demonstrated fidelity to those values through its actions. Yeah? I I think that's a really good takeaway. I would say a second takeaway is that, you know, organizations have spent years, years integrating sexual harassment, weaving it into their organizational culture. They're going to, our leaders are going to have to be a bit patient about unweaving it out of the culture. It's going to take time and you can't do it just by implementing a simple policy. It's not just any one organization, right? This is all embedded into our culture. You write about the movie MASH, which I think 20 years ago was, I thought, really such a great piece of cinema and now I can't watch it, right? I mean, it's so cringeworthy, you know, pretty much Every piece of (laughs) (laughs) popular culture that was produced, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And still today, I mean, they still have a lot of examples of very toxic popular culture. So this is the culture at large. Right. This is what comes into the organizations. And, you know, I talk about in my book that um, organizations aren't a blank slate. They're not situated in kind of a clean space. They're situated in a larger environment. And because they're situated in a larger environment, those um, meanings, those larger understandings of, of the culture, the larger culture come in, whether we want them to or not. I talk about um, the weeds in my garden. I'm a really big gardener. And so I Every year I plant the garden and that's the easiest thing that I do. And then I spend the rest of the summer trying to keep the weeds out. And sexual harassment's like a weed. And trying to keep it out is really hard, especially once you've allowed it to establish a foothold. I'm hearing overtones here of something that I hear from researchers who work in anti-racist spaces. Um, which is this idea that it's not enough to be to not be racist, right? Y- y- we have to be pushing actively against racism 
rooting it out, to use your analogy of the weeds there, in order to prevent it from infesting our organizational cultures. Same thing here. We have this overwhelming culture of sexual harassment. It is deeply embedded in organizations. It's not going to be enough to just go, okay, we're going to stop sexual harassment. We have to have a culture that is anti, (laughs) vehemently anti. Yes, exactly. And you know, what's interesting, I'm glad you said something about this, but this model was developed in part through my work in diversity um, education and in diversity consulting. So yes, it works great to help illustrate how racism comes in and is sustained in organizations. How many organizations are getting this even close to right right now? Oh, so few. Yeah. <laughs> so few. It It's so... Uh, it's so discouraging. I can't even tell you. I hear again the. I guess the the National Science Foundation came out with a policy that they're hoping is going to change this culture of predatory behavior toward women scientists. And I just it's frustrating because I know that it's not going to work. Because policies are not the problem. A lack of policies are not the problem. Right, because 99.8% of organizations or something along that those lines have policies. So if they were going to work, they would have worked. So adding another policy is just not going to do it. Changing up the policy to make it more clear isn't going to do it. At minimum, policies need to tap into the organizational culture. And then the training needs to be culture-centered. I want to go back just a bit, back to how all this became part of your life. Um, you were inspired to study sexual harassment, in fact, to really make it your life's work during the confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas. And people who were around at that time will likely remember that Justice Thomas, uh, now Justice Thomas, was accused of sexual harassment by a former colleague named Anita Hill, who had her reputation dragged through the mud by men who called her a liar and many things worse than that. That was more than a quarter century before the hearings for Brett Kavanaugh, who was also accused of a past that was inclusive of sexual harassment and, in fact, sexual assault, and whose accusers were, once again, 27 years later, nearly to the day, called liars and things much worse. And then we can we can name all these other organizations and situations in which harassment was accepted, permitted, ignored by organizations that had a policymaking training reporting structure. And so I just kind of wonder like have we wasted an opportunity? Have we been just treading water for all of these decades? I well, I don't know. Things are better, right? We're, we're far more likely to acknowledge now as a society that sexual harassment's wrong, that it's bad. So that's good, right? I mean, that's a step up from where we were back when Anita Hill was, was suffering from being targeted. Um, there's more general acknowledgement that this really does happen and that it's bad. So these are, 
these are good things. I don't want to think that we've completely spun our wheels. But in terms of trying to confront organizations that are that have a problem where it's woven into the fabric of their organizational culture, yes, we have been spinning our wheels. We just keep trying the same thing over and over and over again, and people still seem shocked when it fails. That is, you know, colloquially speaking, the definition of insanity, right? Trying the same thing over and over again and having the same results and expecting different results. Right. <laughs> it's, that's right. So it reminds me a little bit of a baby sitting in a high chair. And when they get to the certain age where they, they want to test to see if gravity keeps working, you know, and so they take that spoon and they drop it on the floor and and then they're like, whoa, my spoon's on the floor. And then you pick it up and you put it back on the high chair and they drop it again. They're like, oh, whoa, my spoon's on the floor. And you pick it up and then they drop it again and so on and so on. And so it's like that, right? It's like we're infants in this who just haven't grown or developed a deeper understanding of what gravity is when it comes to sexual harassment. That's Debbie Doherty. She's a professor of communication at the University of Missouri and the author of Sexual Harassment in Organizational Culture. Debbie Doherty, thank you. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And however you listen, please consider giving your support to public radio. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org slash UPR. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Mm-hmm.